You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. It's the day before the Easter long weekend and an early happy Easter to my colleagues joining me to break down the week in media and marketing. Tim Burrows. Hey, Damo. Olivia Crimmel. Hello. And hello, Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Zoe will be talking to Tourism Australia's Susan Coghill about the evolution of holiday here this year, opportunities for travel marketers, and whether international marketing is back on the cards. It's been an immensely challenging time for marketers in and around the travel industry, a reminder of which came just recently with the Brisbane lockdowns. And Susan will shed some light on how she and Tourism Australia are seeing the situation. But first, the week's topics. SCA partners up with 10 in the next chapter of regional media affiliations. Fake influencer accounts back in the spotlight. And April Fool's Day hasn't lost its edge. Southern Cross Stereo, SCA and Network 10 have announced they expect to enter an affiliation agreement on 1st of July this year. The deal would see Network 10 supply its programs for broadcast by SCA in regional Queensland, southern New South Wales and regional Victoria commercial television licence areas. It comes after a busy period for affiliate deals with Nine and Wynn cementing their partnership and Anthony Catalano acquiring a more significant stake in Prime. For a rather important announcement, it was an extremely short press release. Uh, Tim, what was missing there? Well, all of the important stuff, to be honest, and I guess a good clue on when something is spin rather than substance is whether the organisation also makes an announcement to the ASX. So I think it was significant that this one didn't go up on the ASX. All it said was the SCA and Tanner, it didn't even say have signed an agreement. It said they, they you know, they've, they, uh, they're, they're hopeful of reaching agreement. But the most important thing is the length of the deal. You know, that's, I think just about everybody accepted that they would come together because now that Nine um, is going to be getting back together with Wing Corporation, uh, we've got Seven and Prime, we've got a couple of years to run yet on their um, affiliation. So the absolutely crucial thing is, is this going to be another long-term arrangement to tie in with the next time Nine and Wing come up, which is in about seven years' time? Or is it a short two-year deal, which then puts the affiliation with Seven up in up, up in play in a couple of years' time? Um, now, of course, if you were 10, you'd insist on a long-term deal because you'd be in a really weak position in two years otherwise. But if you were SCA, then the lower revenues that they'll get from uh, the low-rating 10 versus the higher-rating 9 means that right now the main question for them is how many years of pain they've got ahead of them. So they would be arguing for two so they can then go after the seven deal. Um, but um, that's going to be the thing that the shareholders are, 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 are you know, really looking out for. So um, so I feel like we, we actually know really not very much more than we did before. There's a big difference between a seven-year deal and a two-year deal. And to, to go a bit further with Nine and Win, obviously, uh, Andrew Lancaster, the Win CEO, is now going to be a member of the Nine board. Who do you think, Tim, holds the balance of power in deciding whether that deal would be a, a two-year or a seven-year or, or something different, I guess? Is it 
SCA or is it 10 here who has a bigger say? This is the fascinating one because in this relationship, effectively the customer is Southern Cross Australia because they're the ones who end up yeah, buying the contents and 10 effectively and then give them a lot of money for it, probably 50% or so of their, of, of their advertising revenue. Um, so usually the customer has the power, but of course, 10 haven't got, um, or rather Southern Cross Australia haven't got a lot of other options if 10 does play hardball and asks them to sign a longer contract. You know, I guess they can sort of play that game of chicken and argue that actually, yeah, they'll they'll do their own news and coverage and then they'll just, you know, buy in a whole bunch of archive stuff and run back-to-back episodes of MASH for the next two years or something like that. But I, I'm not I'm not sure that in reality they dare. Uh, so probably just fractionally. Southern Cross Stereo needs 10 a little bit more than the other way around, but it's it's kind of on a knife edge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, back-to-back episodes of MASH seemed to work quite well for 10 when I was growing up, but uh, looking at this as well, 10 would need this deal or be quite keen to, to have a, a deal in place as well because they've got a similarly uh, low amount of bargaining power as well, right? Yeah, that's the thing, you know, there's, you know, this is the, we were at that moment in the dance where everyone's paired off apart from the last two. So, you know, it's, uh, do, you, <laughs> do you, do you go with the one available dance partner or not? That That's where we're at, really. And do you think this has made uh, any difference at all, really, as to how the regional affiliates are playing out in, at the moment in terms of where we're going to see them or, or where we think we're going to see them. Obviously, I mentioned before, uh, Prime and Seven and Anthony Catalano taking a bigger stake in Prime. We haven't heard very much about that since that announcement. Has this changed the environment that much? We don't really know just yet because we don't know the length of the deal. Uh, we don't know whether that means that um, the relationship between Seven and Prime could come into play in a couple of years. That's the big question because at the moment, you know, it's the last dance of the night and the last two people left are Ten and Southern Cross Stereo. So not a great surprise that the two of them have gone off together or look like they're going to go off together. The question is, in two years' time, uh, will there be a means for renegotiation uh, of other deals or will we be in the same situation when the Prime and Seven deal comes up? They're the only two people at the dance floor, in which case, despite the fact that um, Anthony Catalano's Prime, if we can call it that way, although we haven't quite got control yet, probably has a slightly uncomfortable relationship at the moment with Seven because Catalano and Bruce Gordon blocked the... Uh, attempted merger that Seven wanted to do with Prime. Um, so that that probably leaves a bit of a bonus in Seven's mind if they could at least create some uh, competitive tension by talking to um, Southern Cross Australia as a potential future affiliate. But that's two years away. So um, we just don't know. Until we know the length of the Till we know the length of the deal, we know so little, I don't even really understand why Southern Cross bothered to put out a press release. 
And of course, we'll be looking out for that information as soon as it comes to light. But next up, we're going to talk about social influencers. They're back in the limelight thanks to the feed on SBS. Three weeks ago, Mumbrella ran a story and subsequent Mumbrella cast discussion on social influences in light of the four-part series that was being aired on the feed on SBS. The series reporter Callista Weitenberg and producer Elise Pataka created a fake influencer account and managed to operate it as a business. Today, Mumbrella revealed that the fake account at That Coastal Girl managed to get accepted on the Right Fit platform. Founder and CEO Taryn Williams spoke to you, Zoe, about the story. What was her take on the situation? Yeah, she was really open in talking about it with me. Um, I think for her it was important initially to sort of explain what the right fit is. It's not an influencer marketing agency. It's a platform. It's a marketplace that has clients uh, posting at, um, requests for influencer marketing content. It's got ads for jobs on live sets, doing makeup artistry. It's across the whole sort of realm of talent matching up with what that talent does. So musicians, actors, models, everything. So I think it was important for her to clarify that in her response to how this might have happened. The account making it through the vetting process, she said, is kind of a consequence of the scale of the industry. She said, if we could meet or Zoom everyone in person before signing them up, we would. And that in the cases of this happening, she was really confident in the analytics that the right fit provides clients about Instagram influencers and their followers and engagement rates so that the client could then in turn make an informed decision about whether that influencer is who they want to engage. And that again goes back to what the right fit is. It doesn't actively match the influencer with the client. It's just a marketplace that facilitates both parties finding each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. But what I'm still curious about is they do have a vetting process Uh, They are matching or they're aiding in the match between brand and influencer. So there still has to be quality control there. Uh, Is the right fit essentially saying, though, that because it's a platform rather than, say, a social agency and isn't itself doing the one-on-one connection, they're therefore not responsible for that regulation of who's coming on the platform? I, I don't necessarily see that they shouldn't be uh, held to the same standards as any other agency connecting social influencer with brand. Oh, totally. But I think there's responsibility in terms of the platform or the agency, and then there's also responsibility from the brand and the influencer themselves. I think in this scenario, she said that... Um, the low engagement on the that coastal girl account di- was triggered in the vetting process. However, they signed it up anyway due to the lower follower count, high quality of the photos, and her photogenic ability as as talent for brands. And that obviously does not excuse the right fit from having this slide through. But I think there's it's I don't think it's just on 
the agencies and the platforms to have responsibility for these fake accounts. I think where are the social media platforms themselves regulating fake accounts, fake followers and trying to eliminate them from their own platforms? Yeah, I guess the the big question is though, at some stage the buck has to stop being passed. Someone has to take responsibility, whether it's the platforms, whether it's the agencies. We're still not quite there. One really interesting thing uh, that Taryn mentioned in uh, the article that you wrote, Zoe, uh, was a suggestion that this uh, feature from the, the feed on the SBS was potentially a waste of taxpayer money. Tim, what do you think about that? Look, I think there's so much that needs to be said about the influencer space because I don't, I, you know, I don't think any of us really, we've talked about this before, I don't think any of us really understand how much of this is new new exciting land that we should all be you know feeling pretty good about and how much is a big bubble with you know lots of inauthenticity um so i think hey i'm a taxpayer i feel pretty good about my taxpayer dollars being spent by sbs for uh having done this investigation um you know i i i suspect that it was bad luck for the right fit that they were the ones who you know, we're, 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 we're caught out on this one, but I guess this argument of are they a, what, the, what are the responsibilities of a platform? Um, you know, I'm on their website now. Trusted talent, select from a range of professionally screened talent. That kind of implies that um, if they've got one thing to do, it's to, to you know, it's to cut out the fakes, and obviously they failed. Um, lots of other ones do as well. You might remember a year or two. Mark Ritson posted his piece on Marketing Week where he created a piece of digital art, which was in fact a photograph of his own ass, and then persuaded a whole bunch of influencers, you know, for the price of about $10 a time to put up posts about what a great piece of art it was. So, you know, there's, there's, and that was, a, that was a completely different platform that he, he bought those influencers from. So I suspect it's probably an issue for all of the platforms. And unfortunately, for the right fit, they were the ones who were caught out. But um, I must admit, when I saw the comment from Taryn about is it a bit of a waste of time, a waste of bit, a waste of taxpayers' money, that's so often that you see that comment from people when they find themselves the subject of a bit of unwelcome publicity. It's always, haven't you got anything better to do? Why do this one? And probably the worst possible people to judge what is justifiable news judgment is somebody who's the subject of unwelcome coverage. Yeah, and it's important also, I think, to note that, you know, the audience of the feed aren't going to think about the issues in this realm of the industry the same way that members of the industry do and we as trade journos do as well. So if you're making a documentary about influencer marketing that could be seen by an Australian who's in their 20s or an Australian who's in their, you know, 60s, you've got to start sort of at the beginning and sort of explain the fundamentals to begin with. I do agree that perhaps it's a bit of a, there is a gap in going to Instagram and Facebook and trying to find their culpability, but I don't think it's a waste because if you're going to try and start this conversation and lift the lift the profile, I suppose, of the issues in influencer marketing amongst the Australian public, you do sort of need to start at the fundamentals and explain 
explain it to them from scratch. Coming up next, the April Fool's Day coverage wrap. It's April Fool's Day today and most of the brands took a hiatus in 2020, but they're back with fake press releases and product launches. Uh, But with a bit less of an edge this year, we saw Domino's, Contiki, SBS and Lego, among others, to get involved in the fun. Liv, any highlights from the day or was it just a little bit of a disappointment? Yes, Damien, uh, we've seen Nando's finger gloves, Kentiki flying us to space, non-garlic garlic bread from Domino's, um, Krispy Kreme glaze in a jar and, and much, much more. Uh, nothing overly cringeworthy this year and for the most part, agencies and media outlets have been very upfront with the fact that the activity is indeed an April Fool's prank in case we were not smart enough to work that out ourselves. I would argue that after a pretty tough year though, Um, A well-executed April Fool's prank uh, would be well-received by viewers and consumers. Uh, Interestingly, last year, one of the few brands that did actually do an April Fool's prank was Volley, and it was a a VB-branded shoe that is now an actual shoe. So it just goes to show how a prank can actually turn into something quite successful when well-executed and well-thought-out. Of course, this year we have also seen uh, the case of Volkswagen uh, doing a PR stunt to say that it's now Volkswagen. V-O-L-T-S. Yes, the Volts being the uh, the important part there. Um, it has now apologised for that PR stunt, which was mainly targeted to the US. Uh, it's, I think for many people, it was a bit of a shock to see them do that, given that they're uh, only just recovering from Dieselgate, which was you know, a situation where they found themselves in because of they'd cheated on the emissions testing regime. That actual event cost them $30 billion in the US alone, and that's not a small amount of money. So the fact that they've then tried to make a joke about their electric credentials is quite surprising. So the lesson there is that uh, six years after the fact is still too soon, particularly when it comes to cheating diesel emission tests. Uh, Tim, should brands just have left well enough alone this year? I was surprised by the amount of releases we got with very big disclaimers that these were April Fool's jokes, which in my mind kind of defeats the purpose of sending out an April Fool's joke. Yeah, I feel rather similar. Why Why does marketing spoil everything, Damien? First of all, first That's a of rather all, large claim, but sure, let's go with it for a while. It, it is. First of all, marketing took away Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas. Then they then marketing came after Easter, as, as Douglas Adams observed. You know, it used to be about celebrating that time that they nailed a bloke to a tree for saying everybody should be nice to each other. And now it's all about hot cross buns. And now they've taken away April Fool as well. Um, there are no pranks. It's not a prank when you send a press release saying, here's our April Fool announcement. Um, that he, who's, there's literally no one having a joke played upon them. It appears straight away in a roundup. Um, look, you know, <laughs> this time last year obviously was not really a great time. Um, but the one good thing was a lot of brands decided that it would be good taste not to do an April Fool's Day joke. And unfortunately, we're 
yeah, we're back into the uh, we're, we're 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 back into the old routine where uh, most yeah most mo- most brands are just they're just kind of going through the motions of yeah here's our announcement you know uh, ra- rather than actually trying to trick someone in a funny gentle way um, so. Um, so yeah, I must admit I'm well and truly over April Fool's Day. I, I thought the Grinch stole Christmas, but uh, I like the idea that marketers may have stole Christmas. The one thing I will say is that I, I'm I want to give kudos to Lego because I think their April Fools of a Daniel Andrews uh, Lego uh, figure was actually quite good. And, and if anything comes out of this one, much like the VB volleys, I would love to see a Daniel Andrews figure. Next up, Zoe will chat to Tourism Australia's Susan Coggle. Joining me now on the Mumbrella cast is Chief Marketing Officer of Tourism Australia, Susan Coghill. Susan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Zoe. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with a holiday here this year. It came about at a completely different time in response to the bushfires and when COVID was just something that we would see maybe on our Twitter feed or on the news mentioned overseas. What comes to your mind when you look back to the launch of Holiday Here this year and that period of time? Oh, God, I guess I look back at that moment. Um, uh, I guess, look, with, with with equal, you know, sadness for what was happening to our country and to the industry, um, and also a whole lot of pride uh, in my team for what they were, they, actually my team and our agency partners, and what they managed to accomplish and pull together, um, you know, in pretty unprecedented uh, times for us. We didn't have a, a domestic marketing team at uh, the start of last year. So we had to um, basically create a domestic marketing team, um, create a domestic distribution team, partnerships team, et cetera, um, and, and develop a proposition and a campaign with our partners, uh, which I think we did in, I don't know, inside of a week and probably into market in about two weeks or so. Um, and I guess I would also just throw in, I guess, a sense of pride for the tourism industry and how the tourism industry really um, banded together and really rallied to support each other through, uh, through that time. And in its latest stages, you have been targeting specific types of travel like weekends away and trips to visit family and friends. How important has it been to zero in in more specific travel behaviours in recent forms of domestic marketing to boost travel in different regions? Yeah, look, I guess the the, the reality is that the um, the tourism industry is recovering at different paces, different speeds, depending on where you are in the country. You know, we've all seen um, the the hotels uh, booked out sort of the two to four hour ring around uh, capital cities or so. And they, they are having, some of them are having, you know, stronger years, you know, than ever. But we're seeing different parts of the country really struggle um, in terms of, of that lack of international visitation and international spend. Um, so we need to be mindful of the entire tourism industry in Australia. As the national tourism body, we, we try and, and make sure that 
we are helping the the um, the broadest base of, of tourism operators that we can. And so we do look at different types of travel. We look at different types of travel occasions. If you look at what we did over the Christmas holidays, for example, you know, we really pivoted around experiences. So when people were out having their summer holidays, um, you know, in most of the country, you know, we obviously had our, our little lockdown here in Sydney, which threw a spanner in the works, um, you know, but we, you know, in the rest of the, the country, we were encouraging people to get out there and spend on experiences and really substitute uh, Christmas gifts for experiences together. After the year that we've had, you know, we know that Australians could use a really great holiday. And we know that, you know, experiences together as a family are much more important and much more meaningful uh, than than uh, material things. And the latest iterations of holiday here this year, they've you've brought in Hamish Blake and Zoe Foster Blake. What do they bring to the marketing and why why were they selected? Yeah, sure. Look, they um, well, we actually brought them in back in October. Well, actually, we had planned to bring them in sort of more like July or so. And we had planned to get them out on the road and film this big epic journey, this epic road trip around Australia, um, you know, just as we were starting to see the first wave of um, state borders start to um, relax. And then, of course, we went into another uh, lockdown in Melbourne and, and we started to see the state borders close again. So that really, unfortunately, you know, kiboshed the, the um, TV script and the filming that we had planned. And we ultimately ended up filming them um, in lockdown in Melbourne, uh, planning their own trip around Australia. In fact, we shot that film the the day just before stage four lockdown in Melbourne, you know, and if we hadn't filmed them that day in that house, we wouldn't have gotten them at all. You know, luckily our creative agencies were quite clever. They pivoted from the epic road trip to finding a way for the two characters to interact, you know, to be planning their holiday together over a Zoom call and sharing uh, visuals. Um, and it, it ended up being a really charming um, uh, TV spot that um, or film, you know, that spoke to a real moment in time. I think we'll all look at, back at that and go, gosh, that feels so 2020, you know, but that's when much of the country was in lockdown and having to plan their trips that way or having to communicate with fa- friends and family at a distance that way. Um, and what they brought to it was they brought charm, you know, they brought, um, you know, there's just such a wonderful, likable um uh, as well as um, aspirational couple, I guess they bring. Um, and look, anytime we use celebrity talent, it is to get that cut through, um, and it's because they uh, embody the the character and charm um, of that Australian personality that we need, we want, and we need to cut through um, our communications. And we know from you know all the marketing science that's out there that when you have great characters, when you tell a story, you know you get much more engagement and. Um, uh, and much more, uh, much greater response, I guess, from your consumers. And we are starting to see that play back in some of our research now. We did some research with System One. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the, that research company. Uh, and they, they, um, uh, it's creative testing. You know, and they go through and uh, they compare our campaign and our creative to, you know, a. a whole pool of advertising that they have, I don't know, 70 or 80 ads that they currently have in our system. And we were really, really pleased to see that our latest iteration of Hamish and Zoe, the city's um, uh, execution come back as their top rated um, ad that they have in this running in their system at the moment. So they bring, they bring attention, they bring um, credibility, they bring a bit of fun um, and they just make the whole campaign a little more joyous. And you touched on your agency partners before and how important they've been in the last 12 months. 
MNC Saatchi in particular, you brought on and they came up with the international platform philosophy and it seemed that that was the trajectory that partnership was heading on and now it's had to pivot so quickly. Can you talk a little bit about how your agency relationships have evolved while you've had to sort of quickly adjust your marketing yeah, sure. Look, MNC are a great partner for us. Um, and they were brought on to really, I guess, help us yeah, refresh, revitalize our brand, still very much under the creative platform of There's Nothing Like Australia. You know, that is our longstanding brand platform that we've had for, I think, going on 12 years or so and have invested significantly in. Um, and we do do different creative iterations under that. Um but once we once we you know face the crises of 2020 you know the nature of all of our work the nature the nature of our God, our our working relationships and our processes they all just had to pivot you know and um, whilst we uh, have kept our eye on the international market and continue to uh, be present we really have had a much heavier focus domestically and it has been all about driving uh, rallying Australians to take those trips here in Australia. Um, in a way that they haven't done before. Australians travel very differently domestically than they do overseas. So we're trying to encourage uh, Australians to uh, travel further, see more, do more, experience more, um, and you know, stay for longer. Um, so they've had to pivot, obviously, the the creative strategy and the creative executions, which I think they've done they've done um, brilliantly over the past year. And Easter is fast approaching, Easter school holidays. Of course, school holidays, critical points for domestic tourism. What's what's coming up that we can expect for that period? Gosh, for Easter, look, I, I think we're all across uh, the program that has come out from uh, the federal government, you know, where we are, uh, where they have um, uh, a basically an aviation boost package. So we are very quickly working behind the scenes to understand the ins and outs of what that package um, contains, um, working with our airline partners partners to support that messaging once those airfares go on sale. Um, we are actually making sure that our marketing plans are actually broader than that, that we are supporting experiences far and wide across the country as well. So keep an eye on that. Um, you know, we do have more installments of Hamish and Zoe um, coming up as well. So we're making sure that we, we um, keep that storyline going. And Australia has been in quite a long period of stability now since that lockdown in Sydney over Christmas. How have travel marketers adjusted to knowing that these snap lockdowns and border closures, however, can happen at any time? What's been the biggest learning that's come out of this period? Yeah, uh, look, it's it's really difficult for our industry. It's really, really challenging. And our research does show that the number one fear now is no longer will I catch the virus? It's actually, will I be in another state and the borders close again? So getting to a point where we can um, manage the coronavirus situation, um, you know, where we have targeted um, lockdowns when and where needed, look, it is really important um, for travel marketers um being very clear in your communications around your flexibility policies is super important. If you look at what Qantas is doing with their fly flexible messaging, they run a whole campaign around that. That helps instill confidence in travelers. If you look at what Accor is doing with their um, It's All Good campaign, where they promote their flexible cancellation policy, um, their hygiene, um, their enhanced hygiene programs, you know, and they also offer an incentive around, um, um, you know, double points, et cetera. Things like this are really powerful with consumers and they help reinstill confidence for them. Um, but I guess also thinking about how you can be even more consumer centric, you know, how do you build, um, 
you know, flexibility into your, into the product itself and into the, to your pricing schedule. How do you fine tune that customer experience? So you are being much more proactive about managing, you know, perceptions and communications uh, when things do happen. And for these initiatives to be successful, I'm sure the collaboration between Tourism Australia, the state tourism bodies and tourism operators themselves has become more critical than ever before. Can you speak a little bit to how those partnerships have taken place and a bit of your experience of that? Yeah, sure. I guess like anything in in 2020 and 2021 and in, you know, this COVID world, I guess it it sort of just amplifies everything. I would say that we we have always had really strong working relationships with our state tourism bodies uh, and strong relationships with the tourism industry. Um, But because we haven't been in the domestic market in a long time and we had to, we, we pivoted and came in, you know, within weeks or so. Um, it did mean we had to redefine how we work together. We had to redefine what role that we play versus, say, where our states play. Um, but I guess really we all felt that we have we have a very common goal in supporting the tourism industry and supporting the communities around them. You know, tourism is, um, you know, is very much a, a, a local um a local game. We've got operators all around the country that are um, very vital to the to the economies of those communities around them. Um, you know, with with regards to communications, with when the bushfires happened, we started rolling out weekly webinars for the industry, um, led by um, Philippa Harrison, our managing director. Uh, at that point, I think we were doing twice weekly emails out to the industry. Um, we were doing. Um, I think weekly, we were doing weekly calls with the CEOs of all of our state bodies. We were doing uh, weekly or twice um, uh, monthly calls with the STOC CMOs as well. Um, so making sure that we over communicate, that we overshare was incredibly important. Um, we were look, we were even meeting with our board at one point, you know, on a weekly basis, you know, when you're in sort of crisis management, making sure that you're you're talking and sharing is just so incredibly important. And look, we've just come back from um, now that we can get out and travel again. Um, we've uh, started doing um, planning meetings with each of our state partners as well. We've just come back from a few days up in Darwin with Tourism NT. We've just come back from um, four days up in Cairns with um, uh, TEQ or Tourism Events Queensland uh, and and Tourism Tropical North Queensland as well. And um, it was just so good to be seeing the industry up front and in person having these conversations, you know, one-to-one to understand what they are facing uh, and how we can be there to, to advocate for them. And whilst all of this is happening, the COVID-19 vaccine has been rolling out. How important has that been for building consumer confidence around travel? Look, I think that we have seen the... the um, the coronavirus situation be well managed here in Australia. Certainly, you know, we, we've had our struggles with lockdowns um, and it's been more trying for some regions than others. Um, but by and large, I think that the Australian public is, is um, you know, very proud of how we have managed um, the outbreak here in Australia. Um, and I think that the, uh, the vaccination program will be really important in terms of consumer confidence for international travel. We are seeing the desire for domestic travel to start, it's picking up and it is growing. Um, but as we look to borders opening again, um, you know, we, you know, as we see other markets start to get vaccinated, we see the success of those programs start to roll out. I think it's only going to continue to have a really positive um, uh, impact on consumers' confidence around traveling. And also welcoming international visitors. I might add, it's really important that our um, 
that Australia feels confident about welcoming international visitors back here to our country as well. You know, we we look back at at um, the Hoag's campaign in the '80s with fondness, and the way he you know he asked Americans to um, uh, to come down and say good day, and we look forward to uh, our opportunity to to say that to the world again as well. International tourism was going to be my next question I wanted to ask you about because you're right, the vaccine is so important, not just domestically, but for international tourists as well. Where will you focus your efforts first? Is there a particular region in the globe that you think looks has a better chance than others to be entering Australia early? Oh, look, I... I- don't have a crystal ball that will tell me anything more than when, what uh, everyone else sees in the media. You know, we're seeing a lot of uh, noise again about the New Zealand bubble, which I'm hoping is imminent. Um, there's a lot of talk about a, a, a Singapore bubble or, or travel lanes, um, you know, which which seems logical the way that they have managed the, the outbreak there as well. Um, but look, ultimately, it is down to, um, you know, the federal government. It's down to the chief medical officer to, to make those calls. Um, but we are certainly making sure that we are are planning for uh, across all of our priority markets. We do keep our eyes on other markets around the world as well to understand how they are doing in terms of managing the virus, in terms of, you know, confidence on traveling long distance, uh, you know, whether they've got the um, aviation access, etc. A lot of components that go into uh, driving international tourism. If we start to see things lining up in a market that's more opportunistic than perhaps what we've looked at at the past, you know, uh, we may consider whether we do some marketing there. Um, but most importantly, we keep our eye on our our priority 15 markets or so. And will we see the philosophy platform return? How important will that become for communicating the post-COVID way of life in Australia to overseas guests? Yeah, look, I think it's. Um, I think as we start to plan the next round of our of our marketing, um, you know, we are tr- out there right now in market doing research um, all around the globe to understand consumer perceptions to understand, um, you know, the changing needs and desire for long haul travel. Um, we're understanding our brand codes for Australia, what will be compelling, um, you know, once this crisis is over. Um, so we're just sort of in the early stages, I guess, of, of developing our strategy uh, and our creative for that um, uh, for that time when the borders open. But I guess the most important thing is really that we are continuing to lean into that enduring brand platform of there's nothing like Australia. You'll be looking for the next chapter of that. And I had a chat with Andrew Waddell recently about his Play New Zealand campaign and he said when it comes to the tourism industry, we're all in this together, whether that be internationally, all of the tourism bodies coming together or whether it be within your own country. So I want to ask who outside of Australia do you think is doing great tourism marketing work at the moment? Oh God, I have to say, look, it, I'd be crazy not to say New Zealand. I think that they they do do a great job. Andrew um, and the crew back there um, in New Zealand um, do fantastic marketing. They do um, they have a really strong mix of an enduring brand platform and and storytelling format, and they spike it with really great creative ideas along the way to keep the interest levels up. So yeah, I would definitely tip my hat. I think to to New Zealand. Good rivalry there between us. <laughs> Well, he he credited Tourism Australia as well in return when I asked him. Nice. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And it's been such a strange period of time for the tourism market, but have you observed any opportunities for travel marketers to come out of the pandemic? 
I guess before I answer that, I would want to just say that, you know, it, it has been a really difficult time for, uh, you know, for the tourism industry all around Australia. Um, and they're suffering through no fault of their own. Um, but you do have to look for the silver linings. It's really important that you, that you, um, you know, try to see the opportunities where they, where they lie. I guess the most op- obvious one for us here is the opportunity to market our own backyard. We have a world-class destination that people from everywhere come to. Um, And sometimes we have a tendency here to overlook it for greener pastures overseas for our holidays. Um, And in fact, we need Australians to fall back in love with their country again. And I think we're starting to see that happen. There's also the opportunity to trial new ways to engage with travelers. Um, We've certainly seen um, live streaming of content become so much more prolific and so much more interesting, I guess, over the last year or so. And I'd give a shout out, I guess, to our own um, Live from Oz initiative that we did back in May, you know, which was one full weekend of um, Australian tourism content um, every hour on the hour, coast to coast, um, that we broadcast here domestically and internationally. And that was um, so wonderfully received, I guess. Um, But also, it's, it's a chance to rethink your, um, you know, your, your product and your experience, um, particularly thinking about the online uh, experience for your customers as well. Um, you know, tourism is, um, yeah, it's an industry that's full of sort of small and medium businesses. Some are more digitally savvy than others. For those that aren't, it's a, an opportunity to, to rethink how you go to market and how you make uh, the booking process and, and bringing your consumer through the funnel a lot more easier for them in the online space. Well, Susan Coghill, thank you so much for joining me on the Umbrella Cast. I look forward to seeing what's to come for the year. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Excited to show you. <laughs> and that's it for this week. But before we go, it's time to start planning your Umbrella Awards entries. With the first entry deadline next Friday, this is your opportunity to see your name up in lights at Australia's biggest and most respected media and marketing awards of the year. Avoid the last-minute scramble and ensure your entries pack the maximum punch by outlining just why your people, team, campaigns and strategy are a cut above the rest. There's 31 categories up for grabs. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash Mumbrella Awards for more information. That's it for this week, though. Happy Easter to everyone. Thank you, Liv, Zoe and Tim for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast. Thanks, 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 Emily.